Well, good morning. Hey, thanks for the enthusiasm. I appreciate that. Before we jump in to our message this morning, I actually wanted to share with you just a bit of housekeeping, but really great news for Inland Hills Church. Uh, if you have little kids and you dropped your kids off at our infant kinder area today, some of you may have done that already, you may have noticed that our kids area is totally refreshed and looks a little different. Our classrooms have some cool new decorations, some new furniture and things like that in there. We are partnering with Heights Christian Schools, and this week, this past week, was their move-in because they're going to be hosting a preschool right here at Inland Hills Church starting this fall, and we are really excited to be able to partner with them. These conversations with Heights started only a couple of months ago, and I have to tell you, it's been such a God thing to be blessed to be working with a community partner that has a like-minded mission and has some resources to really help reach out and serve kids and families in our community. Take a look really quick with me at their mission. The mission that Heights Christian School talks about is to lead children and their families into a relationship with Jesus Christ, equipping them in heart and mind to influence the world for God's kingdom. Does that sound familiar or what? It's like a little bit like finding life by following Jesus, right? We are so excited and grateful. So this last week, uh, along with our facilities team here at IHC, the Heights Christian Schools team moved in furniture from another school. They moved in bulletin boards. They had their teacher crews setting up classrooms. And the best thing is our kids on Sunday mornings now get this beautiful benefit of experiencing a, a refreshed kind of preschool environment here. And we're looking forward to the people, the families that God is going to bring through Heights Christian Schools hopefully, to be part of our community here at Inland Hills Church. And we're going to be announcing more about some of the ways that this partnership will roll out, and maybe it will serve your family or your neighbors as well. And they're offering a, a substantial discount on tuition for anybody who's connected with IHC as their home church. We think that's a really cool benefit. And the people, the, the team from Heights Christian Schools, uh, will actually be joining us for our upcoming movie nights. They're going to provide their fun bouncy houses. They're going to make us hot dogs and, and be part of our concessions team, but more more importantly, I'm excited because it means they'll be here on campus to answer questions that you might have or to help just introduce themselves and sort of make this partnership really start taking shape as what we do. So if you haven't had a chance, when you get a chance, wander through that kids area uh, at some point. And just as you can, please be praying for the next several weeks. We've got some additional inspections, the state, the fire safety, all those kinds of things. Um, but if you would just be praying for our team and the Heights team as we start this adventure together, our intention is to really be able to serve families well and to connect kids and families with this love of Jesus. So we're excited, wanted you guys to know that that is something that we've got going on. Well, hey to those of you who are on eChurch as well as those of you here in the room. Uh, as you know, we've been in this series, Voices, and today I thought that we would start with something a little bit fun and maybe a little bit different. We're going to start with the Guinness Book of World Records. I know, I know, it's exactly what you all expected, right? So this woman uh, holds the Guinness World Record for, yeah, you guessed it, the largest mouth, okay? Her name is Samantha, and her mouth opening uh, is a whopping 2.5 inches. I know, you're excited, right? Okay, so that's Samantha. Let's take a look at another one. This guy, Edibar Elchiev of Georgia, uh, this photo was taken in 2011. He holds the distinction for having the most spoons on a human body. There are 50 spoons on his body. But here's my question. I think he's got some extra space. Like, why did he stop at 50, right? Like, I mean, there's this whole, like, what, where? There's no spoon. There's no spoon on his nose. Even kids can do that, right? Anyway, he's, he holds the world record, because there is one, for most spoons 
on a human body. Or check out this guy. This guy is hilarious to me. His name is Milan Roskopf of Slovakia. Back in 2009, uh, he became the world record holder for juggling three motor saws 62 successful times in a row. So what happened on the 63rd time? I don't know, but that's the world record for juggling motor saws in case you thought you might like to compete with that. And then there's this one. Yeah, this is the Duchess. She goes by the Duchess. This is in 2011, uh, this photo was taken, but she holds the world record, I believe still currently, so I'm sorry if you were trying for it. She's got you beat. These are her fingernails. She holds the world record for the longest fingernails. She'd been growing them for 18 years at the time of this picture. Uh, her left-hand fingernails measured 10 feet 2 inches, and her right-hand fingernails measured 9 feet 7 inches. I know, ladies, we've got a little work to do if we want to keep up with the Duchess. But like, there's this crazy culture, this Guinness Book of World Records culture, the idea that greatness, the, the longest fingernails, the fastest this or that, the most this or that, I think as people were sort of drawn in to the allure of, or the wonder, I don't know what it quite is when we're talking about stuff like this, but the wonder of, of greatness, right? And I wanted to share with you today some thoughts around this because greatness as an idea uh, was an idea that even the early followers of Jesus wondered about. And I think we can learn something, hopefully applied to our lives, and I want to share with you a little bit about one of the ways that I've learned a bit about Jesus-centered idea of greatness uh, in my own life. So I want to jump in to the book of Matthew. That's going to be our starting point today because Jesus was asked this question. Now, I just want to say before I jump in, uh, if you are not a Jesus follower, my hope for you today is that you're going to get to see a little bit behind the scenes of why Jesus followers do what we do and maybe what we think about that. And I hope that maybe through this message today, you find it just curious enough, kind of like those world records, but better. <laughs> find it just curious enough that maybe you're compelled to give it some further consideration and if you are a Jesus follower, I'm hopeful that today's message offers you a fresh look at something that's probably pretty familiar. Some of the verses that I want to share with you today, I'm quite sure if you've been a Jesus follower for a while, you've looked at these, you've seen these, maybe you memorized them in Sunday school. But I'm hopeful today that I can give you just some fresh things to think about. And I hope even that you might be challenged to put this into practice in a new or a different way. So let's jump to Matthew. Matthew gave us an eyewitness account. He was one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And uh, he gave us this account of a question Jesus was asked. So Jesus is teaching, and he's asked one of them, an expert in the law, asks Jesus, tests him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, he was referring to the Jewish law, the Pentateuch. There are 613 commandments or laws, precepts, in the Pentateuch, and he's saying, which is the greatest? And of course, it's Jesus, so he should have an answer for that, right? And we can see, pretty straightforward, Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
Now, what I want you to notice is when we look at this first part here, it seems pretty straightforward. Again, right? Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he addresses it. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This would have been a familiar commandment to the gentleman asking, because this commandment was one that was reiterated over and over again at points in the Israelite people's learning of God and their relationship with him. So in fact, this passage that Jesus quotes is from Deuteronomy, right after Moses takes the people through the Ten Commandments, right away, right after that, Moses reiterates a bit of that, and in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, he says exactly this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. In other words, Jesus is repeating to this expert something not all that unexpected, not all that unfamiliar. One of the things, though, that I've always taken some notice of in this passage is the repetition and the use of the word all. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. The message paraphrase says it this way. It talks about all your passion, all your prayer, and all your intelligence. What I love about those things is just this unity uh, that, we're, that we're seeing Jesus express there in terms of giving it our all. It's not just one piece but it's this idea, and that's a challenge, right? Because if we're, if we're thinking about how we divide all of a pie, well, I can't give all of a pie, a single pie, three different ways. But that's what Jesus is asking us to do. A full-hearted investment is what he's asking us to make. But then this passage goes on as Jesus is teaching, and he says, and the second is like it. Uh-oh, surprise. What's the greatest commandment? Here it is. Oh, but wait, there's more, right? Classic Jesus. Here's what you thought you were going to get, but let me just take it one step Further, Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, Jesus doesn't really quite answer the question, what's the greatest command? And Jesus gives us two. That's kind of remarkable, right? I think we should do something with that. And so that's what I want to unpack a little bit more for us today. This idea that loving God and loving others are both a priority for Jesus when he has the opportunity to share with us the greatest command. The world record in following Jesus is going to be done by these two things. There's a wonderful book called Experiencing God Together by Tony Evans. And the whole premise of this book is this sort of both and thinking or this both and loving the idea that our horizontal relationships with others affect our vertical experience of God. You're not changing how much God loves you, but you're going to experience, you're going to see or observe a closeness, a deeper awareness or understanding of God if your horizontal relationships with others are also working for him and in love, right? So when we love God as our first priority, like loving others is such a close second that Jesus says they, they both hang together. Okay. Jesus says, essentially, that the greatest commandment for us is both and love. And of course, Jesus doesn't just tell us this. Jesus modeled it, perhaps better than anyone we could ever look to. Another eyewitness account uh, that gives us some understanding of how Jesus modeled this comes from John, and we'll look at that in just a second. But Jesus shows us that to love God and to love others requires three things. 
It requires, I believe, action. It requires commitment. And it requires us to make a choice. And so we're going to unpack that today through Jesus' example that we can read in the words of John. Another follower of Jesus, an apostle of Jesus who was with him during his ministry, got to see his love and care for others and got to tell us about it in a way that, again, I think just can resonate in our lives. This is what John writes in the book of 1 John. We're going to start with chapter 3 and verse 16. He writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Love is a big deal. Love involves sacrifice. Love, the way Jesus did it, was a really big deal. He laid down his life for us. At its simplest level, love is just simply to prioritize somebody else's needs above, of our, above our own, right? We know that, but how hard can that actually be in practice? I love that, that John highlights for us we ought, to, we ought to do something in response to how much Jesus loved us. We're going to unpack that just a little bit more. John goes on and says this, If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, he's talking to believers, Christians. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Our response to God should be obvious, and it involves or it should involve action. One of the commentaries I was reading this week pointed out this this phrase, uh, the idea, if you see a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them. This phrase, if we're looking at the original Greek, is really aimed at helping us understand if you have no compassion, like you're looking at a situation where you should be able to help, and you literally shut off your feelings. That's what this is saying. If you look at a situation as a Christian where you should be able to help, and you shut off your feelings man, you're missing out on God's love. That's what John is telling us or reminding us. And so again, this idea, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Love is the action that demonstrates our connection with God. Because our truth at its core is rooted in Jesus, who loved us so much that so what? We can act now in love because he's our truth, right? So there's where our actions and truth can line up. Let's go on. John continues here in this same section here. Uh, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God is the source of love. It's the very essence of God's nature that God is love. God isn't just loving Love is not an action for God. God is, at his essence, love. So when we know God, we're experiencing that essence, that total um, character, all of God's activity. Everything God does is done through love. The other thing that John does by writing these words exactly as he did through the Holy Spirit is he's reminding us God is love. God's love is personal. God is choosing to love you and to love you. It's it's a personal thing that John's asking us to reflect on. God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world for you. 
And that's important to hold on to as well. Love essentially is the essence of our commitment then to living like Jesus. If love is the essence of God and we can experience God, we can know God through Jesus, then love becomes the essence of what it looks like to to choose to follow Jesus, to receive his love, and then to do something with that. Love is the essence of our commitment to living like Jesus. And this is the last passage we'll look at in 1 John 4. Same section. Dear friends, still speaking to his Christian audience. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is awesome when we look at the idea that since God so loved us, like the so there is one of those important words, right? God so loved us that it just demands a response. It's an invitation, but it's so much more than that. God so loved us, don't miss it, is kind of what John seems to be saying here. And this idea of we ought to love one another, we saw that earlier from the, same, from the same passage, right? It's not an obligation, you ought to do this or you ought to do that. It's like, how could you not? How could you not in some way, right? And the idea that, this, the, that when we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Okay, God is God, right? God is love. God's love is already complete. So what does that mean? It means that when God is living in and through us, Something awesome happens because we become a way that God's love can be multiplied. The choice to love others maximizes our experience of God in our lives, and it's also going to maximize God in other people's lives, I believe. So we're to love each other, right? God is love. God loved us. And if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete. So to love, again, requires action and commitment and choice. Love isn't random acts of kindness. (laughs) Those are nice, but if we're living the way Jesus has called us to, our love is so much more significant than that. I want to share with you a couple of ways in my life that I've gotten to experience this idea of trying to be the greatest, whatever that means, right? But trying to live in a, in a both-and loving kind of way that Jesus has called me to. So the first thing I would say uh, is my marriage. I, I've been married to my husband, Josh, for 20 years. We just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary, and marriage has definitely taught me a lot about love. Um, I also am a mom to these five awesome kids. They are Andrew and Jamari and Ella and Tony and Biz. And those five awesome kids have also taught me a lot about what it means to love and how I need to grow in that area and how much God loves me and how much I can love them, all that good stuff. But what you don't see when you look at this picture of our family uh, today is that one of the greatest opportunities that I had to learn and to practice love in my life was through an eight-year period of time where my husband and I served as foster parents. And um, I wanted to share with you a little bit about that today because concurrent planning, which is sort of a bureaucratic term that I'll talk a little bit about that has to do with foster care parenting, 
That has taught me more about this both and love that Jesus is calling us to than I think any other kind of human love experience that I've had. Uh, So let me tell you a little bit about concurrent planning. Concurrent planning, required by the Adoption and Safe Families Act of 1997, is an approach that seeks to eliminate delays in attaining permanent families for children and youth in foster care. It involves identifying and working toward a child's primary permanency goal while simultaneously identifying and working on a secondary goal. Okay, time out. That's a lot of bureaucratic garbledygook. You're welcome. Let me translate. It means that as a foster parent, uh, you are invited to step into this like vast uncertainty where you are saying, hey, I will support the goal of reunification with a child's birth family as our primary goal. But also, I'm totally willing to adopt them into my family forever, not knowing any of the details, and that would be great. Go ahead, drop them off at 4 o'clock, right? Like, there's this, there's this total tension between stepping into supporting and loving a, a, a family that's going through crisis, right? That's why their child might be coming into foster care. But without knowing all those details, both supporting a, a goal like reunification, a return home, while also saying, yeah, but if that kid can't return home, I don't know anything about them, but you know what? They could be part of our family forever. Let's do this. And like literally trying to do both of those things well at the same time is what concurrent planning asks us to do. And the goal here, right, this practice can shorten the time to achieve permanency if efforts toward the primary goal prove unsuccessful because progress has already been made toward the secondary goal. In other words, if a return home becomes impossible, They don't have to find another place for this child to go. This child who's been placed with our family as a foster placement can now become part of, the the permanency plan can shift to adoption, and this child can stay rooted in our family with the holidays and the birthdays and whatever that they've known for however long, and they can stay rooted and, and, and feel like they've got a place. They don't have to go bouncing that child to another home and another set of relationships just in the the fragility of a kid's life, right? So in other words, we can work together toward one goal, But if that doesn't work out, right alongside it, like not as a secondary thing, but right alongside it, we've got plan B ready to go. And it's kind of like what Jesus was talking about, this like love God, but love others. They go hand in hand. As a concurrent planning foster family, you're doing both of these things at the same time. It's funny to me when I read through the bureaucracy and I get to chuckle at the fact that they say, uh, this can help permanency go faster. It can shorten the time. Our average experience as parents in foster care that that moved a few of our children into adoption, the shortest amount of time that any of our kids went from their kind of progress through the status, the shortest amount of time was three years. Three years toward adoption, okay? Now, we returned home, and this is the part of our family picture that you don't see. We, We actually fostered a total of seven children during those eight years. And what I want to remind us of through this story is that concurrent planning requires a both and love. It requires action, commitment, and choice. In foster care, some of our actions required things like hosting or attending or writing reports for parent visits, like visits with the biological families that sometimes were happening at the library or at prison or in our home. 
um, all sorts of uh, appointments that were required for these kids that we needed to make sure that they had services that they needed to grow and to thrive, right? They, some of them needed early intervention kinds of services. Some of them just needed different levels of uh, repeated assessments over time to understand their progress so that we could understand how to support them best. The commitment aspect of this is huge, right? It's a time commitment. It's an investment. But it's also a huge emotional commitment, right? Because we're choosing to love these children as best we can and as fully as we can, while we're also seeking to love their parents, right, in some cases, or grandparents or whatever that relationship might look like. And so again, um, some challenges there for sure. And then choice, I think, is a huge part of it, right? The choice that my husband and I made to be foster parents was all about this understanding that we shared, which was that we had been blessed and we knew God's love And we knew that part of God's plan for us was to be parents. Our son, Andrew, after he was born, he was a huge blessing in our lives. We love Andrew forever, (laughs) like you do, right? Your, Your firstborn kiddo. But we knew that God had created a space in our lives and in our hearts for more than just Andrew to be part of our family. And yet we weren't quite sure what that would look like. So again, our choice in foster care was based on this idea that we knew God's love And we knew that parenting for us was meant to be part of it. And it turned out that foster care gave us this way to provide a loving and caring home for kids who didn't have that. But that also meant we had this blessing of our heart secureness was we didn't need to provide a home for every kid in foster care forever. Because some of those kids actually had a loving home to go home to. And if we could provide that bridge, then like we felt super fulfilled in that. In other words, our calling and our purpose wasn't just to, you know, grab and keep each of them. We wanted to be able to serve what was, what was best. And again, God blessed us in that. So I want to share with you today the story of this little beautiful girl. Her name is Izzy. And Izzy was with our family for a span of about 14 months. Uh, this picture up here is actually my son Jamari with Izzy. They were about the same age. So if you date the Eisenberg family. We're going way back here, way back machine, okay? So Izzy was with us for about 14 months. Um, When Izzy came into care, uh, they told us, they called us and asked if we could take a placement. And we had room and licensing and cribs and, you know, all the things you need. And um, they told us that Izzy was coming into care because she had a broken right arm. She's about four months old, and most four-month-olds don't have a way of breaking their arm. And they were actually concerned that Izzy had been in a traumatized kind of situation related to perhaps some violence or unsafety in her home. That's pretty serious. There's a funny part to this story, because when Izzy showed up at our house, she didn't have a broken right arm. She had a broken left leg. (laughs) No kidding, foster care is weird. (laughs) So she had a broken left leg, still a problem, but the kind of details that like nobody seems to get right when they're like, hey, how about this? And you're like, sure. And then but wait, anyway, so Izzy had a broken left leg. Uh, it turned out really that Izzy and her mom had been living in an unsafe uh, family situation. And so um, one of the first things that needed to happen was Izzy's mom kind of accepting some responsibility and she left Izzy's dad and kind of that unhealthy, unsafe situation. And Izzy's mom moved back in with her grandma. Izzy's mom's mom. You get it. Okay. So she moved back in with her grandma, and through that whole time, um, she started to engage right away with weekly visits where she would come to our house or we would meet at the library. She would come. She would drive an hour and a half each way. She was never late. This young lady was in school, and she had a part-time job, and she made it a priority each and every week to be there for the time that the court had mandated that we would allow her to visit with her daughter every single week. 
And so we started to build a relationship. And over the course of 14 months, Izzy and her mom and her grandma just became a part of our family. We celebrated birthdays together. We celebrated holidays. Uh, Our family has a really silly tradition of dressing up as a theme for Halloween. So we were all characters from Peter Pan, like everyone. Izzy was Tinkerbell, her mom. It it was great. It was fantastic. Um, But but the specialness of the relationship that we got to share extended beyond Izzy. And really, we felt a ton of love and, and excitement in seeing the growth in her mom's life as well. We even reached a point where we were able to invite her mom to come to church with us because we built a relationship. What started with Izzy and kind of the care that we had for her, God was just growing in us this, this, well, wait a second, like what if if we could share something bigger than just our love for Izzy? What if we could share our love for Jesus with her mom? And several times she came to church with us and she had had a church background growing up that just didn't really serve her well. And I think she had had a lot of hurt in her life And so to genuinely express not only our love for Jesus, but our our love for her that was just um, not conditioned upon exactly the mistakes she had made, but was more about the progress and the future she was creating for her daughter, I think that meant the world to her. And I think that that was the kind of thing that led her back to a relationship that would even consider coming to church, even consider that maybe Jesus could love her too. And guys, this was the cool thing that God was doing through our family, through this whole time. So we got to a point where we were, as foster parents, in this strange situation of we loved Izzy, we loved having her as part of our family, but we also loved her mom and and could see the progress she had made. And so we, I, as the foster parent, went to court, and I advocated to the judge and everybody that needed to hear it that, you know what? This woman was an awesome mom to her daughter, and we needed to work as hard as we could as a system, which, my goodness, bureaucracy is fun. But like, we needed to work as hard as we could. The social workers and everybody else involved needed to line up and get behind this woman to help her be the best mom she could be to Izzy. And so we had had Izzy with us for almost a year before we were finally able to convince everybody that what they needed to go ahead and move toward were unsupervised weekend visits. They wanted to do those in weird ways. And we were like, listen, this woman works and she does school. Could we just do it over the weekends? Because we trust her and we know that she'll make the most of that time. And you know what? She did. And after a series of those where, again, just trustworthiness was so important, um, we were ultimately able to advocate for Izzy to return home to her mom and to just live and thrive in the home that, that God had blessed them with. See, what we got to experience was this idea that the choice to love maximizes our experience of God in our lives. We loved Izzy, but because we loved Izzy, we could love her mom, and we could love her so much better. We were driven to do foster care, yes, because Jesus loved us, and he gave us the means to help. But man, that also, we really needed to draw on that when we faced some hard times or some difficult challenges or just the delay and whatever was happening in the system. But at the, at the root of it all, it was this choice to love. Marlinda and Izzy just, just let us be in their lives in such a meaningful way. It wasn't just about concurrent planning. It was about concurrent doing. At the same time, could we do these two things? And see, what I want to challenge you with today is that I believe Jesus invites each of us into a practice of concurrent living. Here's what I think that looks like. So God's love for us is a non-negotiable. God loves us 
No matter what you do, God loves you. And I hope you know that, but if you haven't experienced that yet, this is a beautiful thing to experience. And I would love to be able to share with you more about what that can look like and make sure that you don't miss it because God loves you. So if you know that that's true, then we have this option, the ought to, right? If God loves me so much, well, then I love him as well. But see, now this extends beyond just me to each one of us, okay? So God's love is pouring into each of us, and then we have this opportunity not only to love God, but to love each other, right? And the thing that that John reminds us is that when God's loving us, and we're loving God, and we're loving each other, what happens? God's love expands dramatically, like through us. His love is made complete in us. This is how that works. It all started with God's love, but then our response becomes a part of it, and our response is is a vehicle through which God's love gets magnified. So I know the question you're asking is, okay, so what? How can we practice this? Well, I have two answers for you. The first one is really obvious, and it's super easy, and I've definitely laid all the groundwork for it in the last 15 minutes, okay? So number one, you could become foster parents. Hey! No, I'm just kidding. Okay, and I have to tell you, uh, when, I was, when I had the opportunity and have been, have been studying and just asking God, what did he want me to speak about today? I, I did not see coming a message about foster care. Like, that was not a goal that Audrey had. But I think it was an opportunity that God's given me to just share through our story how he's loved us, how we've loved others. And I don't want to miss an opportunity, in all seriousness, to name for you that if you've ever thought about foster parenting, I would love to, and there are some other families in our church who've had this experience that would love to walk alongside you in that. And so this is not my actual application for probably most of you, because I don't think that we're all called to do foster parenting, but some of you might be, and I just want to name that there's a really awesome resource for you. Um, Inland Hills Church partners with an organization called Together We Rise. They serve a number of uh, different kinds of needs in foster care, and it's a great starting point. They have a resource page that specifically helps answer questions like, is foster parenting for me? And they help people get certified. You have to do a lot of training and paperwork and preparation, and they provide ongoing support and resources. Inland Hills Church cares about kids and families in our community. There are other great organizations. Bithia's Family Services is another that we partner with. They don't directly license foster parents, but they can be another organization that we're linked to that we can connect you with if you have questions or wanted to explore it. So like I said, not my main point, joking aside, I just don't want you to miss an opportunity. If you feel God prompting you that way, maybe consider it. And there's lots of ways that you can get some more information about that. But in seriousness, how do we practice this? Because I think God's inviting us to love others by serving others. And guess what? We really do make that easy here at Inland Hills Church. We have what we call our dream team. And our dream team involves roles like being a barista or serving in our kids' ministry or serving behind the scenes on our production team or serving as one of our ushers or our greeters or at our connection spot. Here's the thing. There is a way that God has gifted you to serve each other here. When John talks and he says, dear friends, and I kept saying over and over as I was sharing those passages, he's talking to the Christians, the believers that are already trying to live like Jesus. He's talking to you. He's talking to me. He's talking to us. Dear friends, how are you loving and serving here? 
I would love for you to get connected with our dream team, and there's an easy way you can do it. On our website, if you look at inlandhills.com slash dreamteam, I know, we're very innovative with the friendly URLs, okay? But if you look at this uh, page of our website, you'll see that there are a number of areas that you may have an interest in serving. And all we would invite you to do is click the button and share with us what you might be interested in. And then we're going to follow up. We have awesome staff, awesome volunteers who can lead you into more conversation about what that role might look like. Would you love to serve on our worship team? Okay, cool. Here's how that looks. Would you like to serve with our safety team? Okay, let's have a conversation. Why don't you come along on a Sunday and see what that looks like behind the scenes? We'd love to share that with you. We want to make it easy for you to get plugged in and involved. Why? Not because we have a bunch of slots to fill. It's not because we have slots to fill. It's because God has given us this opportunity to love one another by serving. And I don't want you to miss that. I just think it's that compelling. So if you're looking for a way to get involved and you know that you'd love to get involved, joining the dream team is a great way to do that, okay? But maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking like, I don't know, I'm still kind of new around here. What are the options even? How do I possibly figure that out? We're so glad you asked. Uh, We have a class called Activate. It's a four-week class. And coming up this next month, we're going to be offering that on Thursdays during the day on Zoom and also on Sunday mornings. So you have two different options depending on your schedule. Activate is all about helping you understand the sort of mission mindset of Inland Hills Church and then inviting you to step into your gifts to serve and to get plugged in. And we don't just serve here at IHC. We also serve in our community. We have awesome partnerships with nonprofit organizations around the Chino, Chino Hills, Pomona kind of area, right? You are definitely called and you can make a difference and we know that. And so we just want to make that connection possible for you and easy for you. We want you to step into it with confidence, but also just with obedience, honestly, because God is calling you to it to to maximize the experience of God through your life so that it can be an influence for others. So if we're recapping here, concurrent living requires a both and love. We're called to love God and to love others. We're called to do that through our action, our commitment, and the choices that we make. Jesus didn't just command us to this kind of love. He lived it himself. Jesus' action, right, he came to earth to dwell among us, to live fully human, to teach us, and then just to love us and to serve. I mean, how many examples can we see in the Gospels of Jesus serving people who were marginalized, that had been forgotten about, or bad assumptions had been made, and Jesus just invited those people in to fellowship with him? His commitment to us went all the way to the cross. Jesus made the choice to willingly give his life for us. That's how much he loved us. That's how far he was willing to go to maximize our experience of God's love through him in our lives. I mentioned earlier Tony Evans, and I love the way he sums this up. He says, when we are living as a horizontal Jesus to those around us, God's love explodes on the scene. Wouldn't it be cool if we could be the picture of what it looks like when God's loving us, we're loving God, we're loving others, and God's love explodes on the scene. 
That sounds kind of messy, right? Like, there's God's love everywhere, right? Like, that's gross. No, it's not. It's amazing. Could we be part of that? What does it look like for you to be part of that and to put that into practice this week? At our core, I think as people we're interested in or we're pulled toward greatness, the Guinness Book of World Records wouldn't exist if we weren't, right? We're pulled toward greatness. And I would just invite you this week to consider how does Jesus' command, how does Jesus' example, how does that pull you toward a fresh kind of greatness? Loving others, serving others, and, and loving God so well, growing in your experience of God through those relationships with others. That's my encouragement, my hope for you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the transformational power of love in our lives, God. And I just pray that if we've experienced that, that we would just have no choice but to turn back to you a life of worship, a life that seeks to live for you by loving and serving others. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way that people constantly extend themselves to prioritize other people above themselves. God, I thank you for the many examples of men and women here who do that each and every day or each and every week. But God, I know there's more that you can use us for. And I just ask that you would be stirring through your Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of those who are hearing my voice this morning, God, that you would just be moving in a powerful way to push them toward action and commitment and a choice. God, we give you all the worship and all the glory and honor and all the praise because of Jesus. We pray these things in his awesome name. Amen.